Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Rachel Maddow, and Tom Hartman. According to U.S. military intelligence, and I've spoken to their upper echelons, Wolf, and according to the insurgents themselves, this is both the Sunni insurgents and the Shia militias. No one wants civil war. As the senior U.S. military intelligence officer told me, it's not in anyone's interest except Zakawi's right now. And by and large, for what it's worth, that's what the mainstream of the insurgency is also saying. They're saying the Shia, the Sunni are not our natural enemies. We need to focus on the main fight, which is that against the common enemy, the U.S. soldier. That is Michael Ware of Time Magazine talking to Wolf Blitzer, and he is discussing the uh, common enemy being American foreign policyism, uh, or any American Poli- at this point, policyism. And um, well, it, it is encouraging at least that there is uh, there is a move to unite the Iraqis. That's what you call your unity government. Mm-hmm. Now you know that uh, Condoleezza Rice and Jack Straw went made a surprise visit to Baghdad, and it was to bully. Abraham Jafari, but also, I think, Sam, to make sure that in the uh, trial of Saddam Hussein, that is, uh, today they brought new charges against Saddam Hussein, crimes against humanity, and Halabja being one of them. He gassed his own people, people. You heard that a lot in the uh, build-up to going to war. Now, what uh, I'm assuming Condoleezza Rice said, let's make sure that there's not a lot of embarrassing admissions about George Bush the first and Ronald Reagan when he gassed his own people and where he got the materials to do so from. And are you about to read something? Well, just hours after uh, they left, uh, ten worshippers were blown up by a suicide car bomber near a Shiite mosque in, in Baghdad. So uh, they're, they're certainly spreading the peace. Well, the thing, uh, besides the fact that it was a horribly bad idea that... Any thoughtful person would have known going into Iraq, unless, of course, your objective is to have perpetual war, which may absolutely be the case, and that's why Iran may be next on online. Just to the long war, the new the new name for this war, uh, the war on terror, the long war, Operation Iraqi something, whatever it is, it's now called the long war, as Donald mm. Rumsfeld said at his Pentagon briefing. And I think part of the point is perpetual war. Because it, it serves many purposes, not just for the neocon agenda, but for Karl Rove uh, and his Republican Party to always use the threat of, of the enemy. I like being a war president. Makes me feel good. And uh, it's also known as a warlord. Yeah. If I it's like. somebody we don't like. But let's get some context for the gassing of his own people, which was never, ever mentioned in George Bush's the first re-election campaign. But it was, it was mentioned something in the mainstream media during the George Bush the first election campaign, it was mentioned 25 times. In the run-up to this second wow. invasion, it was mentioned 375 times. Devoid, of course, of context or historical um, historical uh, uh, back, background, backdrop, or any information that uh, a citizen could could have to put in their mind to say, wait, this something is rotten in Denmark, or Halabja, in, in this case. Not necessarily. Denmark at that time was fine, and then came the cartoons. Mm -hmm. And then now it wasn't so fine. But anyway, so during 1988, when Saddam Hussein carried out his uh, gassing campaign against the Kurds, the international community had asked Bush number one and the American government to stop supporting Saddam Hussein. 
Not only did they not do that, they increased their support of Saddam Hussein and actually gave him much more access to agriculture and uh, because he had destroyed their own crops, even though they had their own decent um, agribusiness going in the region, the gassing campaign um, contaminated the groundwater and the soil. So Reagan and Bush decided to allow him to have more food to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so apparently that was not a problem, is my main point in this. And I'm, there's Well, a book- we've all seen the photo of Donald Rumsfeld uh, heading over there, shaking mm-hmm. hands with the Saddam Hussein, just literally uh, weeks before, basically giving the green light. I mean, that's and Bob Dole went over too, which you don't see footage of. And then April Glaspie went over after that. But Bob Dole actually went over after the gassing campaign, which I didn't know about, or maybe I did and forgot about. That's it. a good job. You guys did a good job with the gassing. Iraq under siege: the deadly impact of sanctions and war. Edited by Anthony Arnove, our friend from mm-hmm. Seven Stories Press. He can give you what the mainstream corporate media won't give you. And there is um, in. In 1989, as uh, George Bush the first uh, was invading Panama, because that was an important thing to do as well, George Bush the first um, took another opportunity to increase the credit to Iraq to allow them to make purchases again for U.S. agricultural products and then also dual-use machinery. There's a sound effect coming. That was a little late. I know. That was a bit of a pause there. So, well, that dual use. I mean, essentially, what it is is you can either uh, kill um, you can either kill weeds with this stuff, mm-hmm. or you can kill people. But in addition to that, there were people in this country who actually protested back then. And on ABC News, there was a gentleman named Charles Glass who it, it, he didn't like this, so he did a story on ABC television that said, "Why is he our friend? And this terrible thing has happened. Why have we increased again our aid?" To him, and the Pentagon was trotted out to deny that Saddam Hussein was anything other than a loyal ally. And the Pentagon said he has no biological weapons. He is not a threat to the United States. Right. So think think about that. Yeah, when when he it is useful to ignore all the death and all the destruction and all the uh, Hitler of Baghdad nonsense that people like to trot out. You will have a Pentagon official in a suit who will come out and deny it on the news, and then ABC will drop the story. Because this guy, Charles uh, Glass, or whatever I just said his name was, I just put the book down, he tried to get traction on that story, and ABC mm-hmm. told him to back off of it. Now, of course, when they want to go into Iraq, you can have probably the same Pentagon guy, or one slightly younger, come on and say he's the biggest threat to humanity and uh, the mushroom cloud and all this nonsense. But what is the most galling about all of this is that what does it take for ABC to trot out the old footage? What does it take for NBC to? This is the public airwaves. This is, this is something that you would think would be a crisis of conscience for at least one or two journalists. Why did they get into the business in the first place? One assumes when they were younger that, hey, I'm going to be an investigative journalist and when I, because I want to contribute. I want to make a difference. I want to do something. I want to, I want to be like whether they, were turned on by Upton Sinclair or H.L. Mencken, whatever it was, that that would prevent them when they are insulted, as we all are, by seeing in the run-up to the second Gulf invasion, he gassed his own people, he's the biggest threat. There, I mean, there have to be some of the same employees.
uh, Victor online, in, online too, in D.C. Victor, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Good, how are you? Good. This, this continues to be the best show in media. I'm not trying to butter you up, but the most insightful, and I think you guys um, make great points, and um, you understand what's going on in the world a whole heck of a lot better than the mainstream media, that's for sure. Thank I you, actually Victor. like being buttered, so if you want to keep going, you got that'd it, be Jim. great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to point out a, a problem with divvying up Iraq. Sure. Um, it's the neighboring countries, particularly um, Turkey, yeah. would have a severe problem with the Kurdish uh, mm-hmm. people having their own homeland, and that would almost guarantee turning this whole problem into a major, major, major problem. And, and in light of the the bombings this weekend, probably would lead to a pogrom in, in, uh, in Turkey. Can't you talk to them, Jenk? Why are they such haters? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the Armenians are right. Uh, By the way, the word's not pogrom. It's pogrom. Pro- it's program. Program. I'm just kidding. Program. You're right. You're totally. You nailed it. Uh, let me uh, let me ha- try to handle that question. It's a great question. We appreciate it. In fact, yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, and thank you for the call. Look, here's the situation. The Turks are always a pain in the ass, and uh, oh, and they're always don't causing to, trouble. Don't have to tell me. Yeah. Certainly don't have to tell Jill. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And so we're going to have a little bit of problem with the Turks. But uh, I'm actually less concerned about that these days. Why? Uh, about a year ago, Turkey switched from, we will not allow Iraq to be split up because they're worried that the uh, Kurds that will now have Kurdistan will want to get a part of Turkey and make that part of Kurdistan as well, to they went to their new stance, which is they reached out to the Kurds in, uh, in northern Iraq and said, listen, turns out the real problems are those Sunnis and Shiites. Right. And this thing's about to blow, right? So if it blows, let's do a little pact, okay? And our agreement, informal agreement, will be you don't come into Turkey and try to agitate and get part of Turkey as part of your Kurdistan, and we'll support you against the Sunnis and the Shiites, and we'll make sure that we protect you if they encroach on your territory. It's weird. The Turks almost seem like assholes, but they're secretly reasonable. Secretly? I I feel like that's a trend. I should take a lesson away from that. Huh. Interesting. Uh, so they come out blustering, <laughs> the Turks do in public. Oh, we will not allow Iraq to be split up. But secretly, they're talking to the Kurds like, all right, we got your back to some degree. Now, that could that still be a huge problem? Definitely. And that, that's the you know word on the street, and that's the informal agreements as far as I understand. Uh, does it mean that it's you know concrete in stone? No, no of course and not. it could of be a problem. Not. But I think the real problem is not Turkey and Kurds at this point. I think the real problem is the Sunnis and the Shiites. Like if they start killing a lot of Sunnis, the Iraqis in league with the Iranians, then the Saudis and the Jordanians and the Syrians, Syrians could be like, mm, we're not comfortable with you killing all those fellow Sunnis. I think that's the much bigger problem, but that's why if you do it in an organized fashion, you could put a lid on it rather than having it blow up in a chaotic way. We're not talking about divvying up Iraq at the end of a civil war. We're talking about divvying up Iraq as part of a political process. And also, from Turkey's point of view, the, the, the Europe and the United States, uh, they hold an enormous card over Turkey. And, and if Europe decides to uh, make membership in the EU easier... Then you know Turkey may uh, uh, or make the path to it clearer since it's still unclear. Then then Turkey is that's an enormous incentive for Turkey to disengage from hostility toward the Turks and the, toward the Kurds in the south. Eight six six nine nine seven four seven four eight. Can't believe I know that much about it.
<laughs> Nicely done, Ben. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, yeah, 866-997-4748, 866-99. Can I squeeze in another point here, yeah, actually? Sure, sure, okay, sure. okay. Real quick, guys. i got to let you know about this. New York Times is running a piece today uh, about how uh, J- Jafari, who was supposed to be the new prime minister, might not become the prime minister. There's internal more. But if you can believe this, there's more internal turmoil in Iraq they, it looks like uh, the Shiites have split amongst themselves. They're not just fighting the Sunnis and the Kurds now. They're actually fighting each other. It's the old Muqtada al-Sadr yeah, guys. You, you say that like it's surprising. It's not surprising at all. I mean, it's not just Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds. It's significant sects uh, within uh, those ethnic breakdowns. It's the Badr Brigade versus the Mahdi army. I don't have to tell you that. And in Jafari also, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're not at all happy with Jafari in any way, shape, or form. The problem is Jafari is mainly backed by Muqtada al-Sadr. He's the cleric that we actually fought a couple of insurgency fights against in Najaf, if you remember. He issued an arrest warrant for him early in the war. And Rumsfeld said earlier in the war, we will arrest this man, there's no other options. And then they were like, oh, never mind, you oh, run around. wait a minute, he's really, really popular. Right. <laughs> not only will we not arrest you, not only will we let you go, not only will we let you build up your Mahdi army, uh, but we'll let you pick the next Iraqi prime minister. And, and Sadr had picked ja- uh, Jafari. And now it turns out there's the other side of the Shiites are pissed. And in th- that side is the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq. So... The Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq are the slightly better guys in Iraq. And now they have their own candidate, and now they're ready to rumble. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of like the West Side Story, but incredibly violent and Iraqi. Yeah, and with significantly less singing. And hot chicks. Yes. So otherwise, it's just like West Side Story. Right, exactly. Uh, so, if you thought it was fun when the sects were fighting each other, wait till you get a load of Iraq when the sects start fighting within each other. And then see if the U.S. can figure out what's happening. By the way, Rice went down there, and as to show how much progress we're making, she stayed overnight. It was the first time a major person, Iraqi, I mean, U.S. official, has stayed overnight since 2003 when they almost killed Wolfowitz when they attacked the hotel. second story on the front page today is about our beleaguered Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. I don't know if you ever read that kid's book, um, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I always found that to be a very comforting book. But this weekend was definitely Condoleezza Rice's Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Trip to England. England, remember, is supposed to be our one ally left in the world, kind of. Our one major ally, at least, left in the world. It's basically, you know, England and Palau. Those are our friends in the world now. Those are the people who would come to our slumber party if we had one. But when Condoleezza Rice went to England, it was basically a cavalcade of disasters. One snub after another. Protests at every single stop. This was kind of a payback trip uh, for Jack Straw. Jack Straw, who was her counterpart. He's the foreign minister in Britain. And he had, she had invited him to Alabama to, uh, to visit where she grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And this was her, tri- her, her, her time to repay the favor and, uh, and, and go to his, 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 his district called Blackburn, which is kind of a rundown place in Britain that I have spent some time in. Uh, it's not a very nice town, but, you know, it's very scrum. He's showing her around. 
the Blackburn Rovers is the local soccer team. The big idea was that she was going to show up, and he had take, she had taken him to a football game at the University of Alabama. Now he was going to take her to a soccer match. They rescheduled the match. So it wasn't going to take place when she was there. So he brought her to the big empty stadium and showed her around, which is kind of sad. Later that same day, she was supposed to be meeting Paul McCartney because uh, they, they went to Liverpool from Blackburn. And uh, Paul McCartney at the last minute said he was otherwise engaged and couldn't make it. So instead, she went to the Liverpool Institute for the Performing Arts, which was a school where Paul McCartney had once been a student. Uh, they, give a, the, they had the choir sing for her in the Paul McCartney Theater at the school. That said, uh, a whole bunch of students were protesting uh, at that event, um, including the school director having given permission to a bunch of students who lined up just inside the school's front door and stood wearing black T-shirts right when she walked in. So they were the first thing that she saw, and the T-shirt said, no torture, no compromise. And she was taking questions there, and she stepped in it diplomatically. A secretary of state, you don't want to make controversial statements criticizing your own government, right? But she had this to say before she got very embarrassed and had to take it back. Yes, I know we've made uh, tactical errors. Thousands of them, I'm sure. This could have gone that way or that could have gone that way. Oops, her spokesman later said, just a figure of speech. We haven't made thousands of errors. Just a figure of speech. So after making this diplomatic wobble, after the kids in the black T-shirts, after Paul McCartney saying no, after the soccer team moving on and not playing a match while she's there, Jack Straw decided to take her to a school in his district where many of the students are of Indian or Pakistani descent. The idea was to show her, like, you know, how diverse his hometown is, how diverse his district is. Well, tons of the parents kept their kids home that day in protest. Other kids who were there cut classes in order to join the protests. Uh, there was giant protests there, more than a thousand people protesting, yelling stuff like Condi, go home, and other things even less polite. She then ended up supposed to go to visit a mosque, a useful political symbol, of course. The mosque leaders canceled that visit, citing threats by protesters to disrupt it. Then she went to go see a performance by the Liverpool Philharmonic, but their main soloist refused to attend in protest against her. Then she went to go see the joint fighter project, a joint fighter pilot project that the U.S. and Britain are working on, and the shop floor was empty because there were no workers there to be seen. 19 miles Anthony C. Zinni. Opposition to U.S. policy in Iraq began on the monsoon-ridden afternoon of November 3rd, 1970. 1970. Anthony Zinni was lying on a Vietnamese mountainside west of Da Nang, three rounds from an AK-47 assault rifle in his side and back. He could feel his lifeblood seeping into the ground as he slipped in and out of consciousness. He had plenty of time to think in the following months while recuperating in a military hospital in Hawaii. Among other things, he promised himself, if I'm ever in a position to say what I think is right about issues of war and peace, I will. I don't care what happens to my career. That time has arrived. Anthony Zinni was on Meet the Press this weekend. 
Uh, Alex, if you just fire off this up, it, it, it runs a little long, but I just want you to hear this this entire clip. This is General Anthony Zinni, a guy who has been there, done that. He was in Vietnam. He got shot up. He nearly bled, bled to death. He has led troops into combat. He really understands it, just like Dwight Eisenhower really understands Well, I'll, I'll, I'll come back with a rant after. Here's Anthony Zinni. Uh, I saw the what, what this town is known for, spin cherry-picking facts, using metaphors to evoke certain emotional uh, responses or, or, or shading uh, the, the context. We, we know the mushroom clouds and, and the other things that were all described that the media has covered well. I saw on the ground uh, uh, sort of walking away from 10 years' worth of planning. You know, ever since the end of the first Gulf War, there have been, there's been planning by serious uh, officers and planners and others and policies put in place. Ten years' worth of planning. You know, it was thrown away. Troop uh, levels uh, dismissed out of hand. General Shinseki basically insulted for speaking the truth and giving a, an honest opinion. The lack of uh, cohesive uh, uh, approach to how we deal with the aftermath of political, economic, social reconstruction of a nation, which is no small task. A belief in these uh, exiles that uh, anyone in the region, anyone that had any knowledge would tell you were not credible on the ground. And on and on and on, decisions that disband the army that were not in the initial plans. I mean, there's a series of disastrous mistakes. We just heard the Secretary of State say these were tactical mistakes. These were not tactical mistakes. These were strategic mistakes, mistakes of policy made back here. Don't blame the troops. They're the ones that perform the tactics on the ground. They've been magnificent. If anything saves us, it will be them. Should someone resign? Absolutely. Who? Secretary of Defense, to begin with. Anyone else? Well, I think that, that we, those that have been responsible for the planning, for overriding all the, uh, the efforts that were made in planning before that, that those that stood by and allowed this to happen that didn't speak out, and there are appropriate ways within the system you can speak out at congressional hearings and otherwise, I think they have to be held accountable. The point is those that are in power now that have been part of this are finding that their time is spent defending the past. And if they have to defend the past, they're unable to make the kinds of changes, adjustments, admit the mistakes, and move on. And that's where we are now, trying to rewrite history, defend the past. Ridiculous statements that, well, wait 20 years and history will tell you how this turns out. Well, I don't think anybody wants 20 years to continue like it is now. You know, one of the main points that Anthony Zinni made in that was pointing out that Don Rumsfeld had just said that the mistakes that were being made were tactical, not strategic. This is military speak for saying it was the guys on the ground, it was the soldiers on the ground who screwed up Iraq. Not Rumsfeld, not Bush, not Cheney, the official, oh, not our fault, crowd. Really what you're, what you're seeing here, writ large, goes back to our original interview this morning with Kevin Phillips, where he was talking about, and, and in his book, American Theocracy, where he talks about the, our addiction to oil, our, our trans, transfer, the transfer of the United States from a manufacturing economy to an economy based on finance, which is a house of cards. We've been there before. We were there in the late 1920s. And the rise of, of, of the religious right. And setting that latter part of, uh, aside for the moment, the conservatives had been chewing on this thing ever since 1948-49. They, they, they hated Roosevelt. They hated Frank uh, 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 Harry Truman. And Harry Truman said, you know, when we put together Germany and Japan, 
Let's put them together in a way that they have the, the protections that we have been talking about in the United States for the past 15 years, since the mid-1930s, the past 20 years for all practical purposes, since the Great Depression began in 1929. He said, let's, let's take these things that we're starting to see work in the United States and allow the Japanese and the Germans to run with them. And they wrote into the Japanese German and German constitutions and laws that labor was protected. And this spread across Europe. You see, it's being undone now in France, thus the riots. And they wrote into the Constitution that, that there was certain, a certain limits on, on the exploitation of labor. They wrote into the Constitution the, a progressive tax system. They wrote into the Constitution free, free unlimited health care for all persons. Health care is a right. And the conservatives have been going nuts ever since. They've been, they've been saying, no, we want to have a country where we can, we can do like, like, like Truman did with Germany and Japan, and we can make it a conservative paradise, and we can show that the conservative vision is just as good for a nation as the progressive or liberal vision was back in the 1940s in Germany and Japan, which became the second and third largest industrial powers in the world, by the way. And so they got their chance with Iraq. They were chomping at the bit. They got their chance with Iraq. And they were going to do it differently because they were so convinced. The reason why Rumsfeld over and over and over again, Rumsfeld, the reason why Rumsfeld ran into this thing with too few troops and, and force reduction scheduled to go down, 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 and why the only thing that they were looking at was oil was because they were convinced they actually believed their own PR. These guys, I mean, I suppose you have to give them credit. They actually believed their own PR that if they allowed a country to be taken over by the multinational corporations and, and, and laissez-faire capitalism, unrestrained capitalism, the French would call it savage capitalism, was allowed to rule the country, that the result would be the rise of an extraordinary world power. That Iraq would become the, the not just the centerpiece of the Middle East, but the centerpiece of the world. Everybody would look at it and say, oh, well, the Japanese and Germans were, it was a good experiment, but boy, look at Iraq. I mean, this is what they were talking about in, 2000, in 1998, in 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002. This is exactly what they're talking about. This is why they made a flat tax, a 15% flat tax in Iraq. This is why they're doing away with the, with the food subsidies, the equivalent of a welfare program, food stamp kind of program. This is why they allow foreign multinational corporations to own anything in Iraq. There's no domestic percentage of manufacturing laws like there are in, for example, China. Mexico, <laughs> countries that are still trying to protect their economies. We gave that up a while ago. And look at the result. Look at the result. The boy in the middle, he said, down to pray. He moves to the window. I can see him as he waves. Hey, Mac, look out. But Mac calls back Billy. I, on, on a daily basis, I am flummoxed, and that's understating it. That the if, if you want to understand what uh, today's GOP-led corporation, formerly known as the U.S. government, is all about, there's three stories at democracynow.org. Please do yourself a favor every day. Check out Democracy Now! and go to democracynow.org. Download the news stories. Okay, there's three stories that really sum up what the Republican corporation formerly known as the U.S. government, is all about. One, Iraqi cameraman acquitted yet remains imprisoned. Two, government scientists 
alleged global warming censorship. Three, insurance companies post record profits. Okay, let's let's unpack all three. Okay, an Iraqi cameraman working for CBS News was acquitted of charges Wednesday that have kept him in prison for a year. Despite his acquittal, the judge has ordered him return to his cell at Abu Ghraib. The cameraman, Abdul Amir, was filming clashes in Mosul when U.S. troops shot him and arrested him a year ago. He was accused of incitement and of recruiting for the anti-U.S. insurgency. Amir's lawyer, Scott Horton, commented after the hearing, I would like to observe first that this has been a great day for justice in Iraq. I think no one who witnessed the proceedings this morning would think that justice was served there. But let us think about something else. Now, that's a a weirdly phrased sentence. I think he's being sarcastic, so pretend that you can hear a sarcastic tone, Justice Sotomayor. Okay, so he says, I think no one who witnessed the proceedings this morning would think that justice was served there. But let us think about something else. In a courtroom almost anywhere else in the world, when an accused is acquitted and is determined to be completely innocent of charges brought against him, he walks free from that court. That did not happen today. Abdul Amir is still in detention by the American authorities. We should all focus on the fact, even though he was completely acquitted, he remains in prison, and we should all direct our questions to the American forces about his release. So, yeah, why is he at Abu Ghraib? Don't know. Why are many of the people at Abu Ghraib? We don't know. We don't know what the charges are. We don't know uh, what the government's information about them is. And in addition to that, there has still been no investigation to the murder of the Al Jazeera employees, the cameramen and uh, some of the news people who have been, according to Al Jazeera and eyewitnesses, deliberately targeted for assassination, courtesy of the coalition forces. So there's no investigation about that. That's typical of the Republican-led corporation formerly known as U.S. government. Now here's government scientists alleged global warming censorship. In the United States, the Washington Post is reporting government scientists who specialize in climate research are complaining the Bush administration has imposed difficulties on allowing them to speak publicly about global warming. Researchers at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Administration said Bush officials have berated them for speaking on policy questions. The Bush administration has removed references to global warming from their work investigated news leaks, and sometimes urged them to stop speaking to the media about global warming altogether. In one case of White House censorship, several key words were removed from a press release, including global warming, warming climate, and climate change. Earlier this year, the top climate scientists at NASA accused the Bush administration of trying to stop them, him from speaking out about the links between greenhouse gases and global warming. Okay, that also is indicative of where the Republican-led corporation, formerly known as U.S. government, is at. Okay, third, insurance companies post record profits. Los Angeles Times is reporting U.S. insurance companies posted record profits last year, despite the huge damage caused by Hurricane Katrina. In total, the insurance industry pulled in $44.8 billion in profit, 18% increase over a year ago. Los Angeles Times says the profits reflect a broader trend of a shift of financial risk Risk is shifted from the corporation to the individual. That is what Republicans are all about. Shift the risk. An all-state spokesman said, if last year's hurricane season had occurred 10 years ago under Bill Clinton, it would have been devastating for the company. But now, under George Bush, it is merely disappointing. (laughs) That is it. That's what it's all about. Shifting risk 
from the corporation to the individual and also subverting the legal process. a clip that people found uh, of them talking before the show starts. So to be fair to them, they're not on air here. It's Chris Matthews Hardball with Tom DeLay. And for those of you who are watching on the youngturks.com, it's also going to be a little difficult to see it because it's such a small screen that we have, uh, unfortunately. But we put a link up to it on the website. But let's play it for you real quick. Uh, they're talking about, uh, in the beginning, there's a lot of mumbling. Uh, Chris Matthews is telling them about some... Uh, uh, research group that he that did a study, Frank Luntz's study, and they get into Hillary Clinton and what they think of her. We'll play it and then uh, and then we'll comment on. Hey, thank you for calling me. Well, it was, not, it was a good thing for me, mostly. I mean, it was. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> we got on the air as fast as we could. Yeah, well, you didn't know there was any. Uh, there wasn't any. We there wasn't any. But if, if Shannon had told me there was a, an embargo, I would have honored it, but I didn't. Well, didn't get any, she, she, she told me. I told him. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get any embargo, but but uh, you just said to me if you're on the morning news tomorrow morning, this is something you can use, which is fine. But uh, she called me and said, "Don't worry, he's not going to complain." <laughs> Have you seen this uh, new uh, focus group stuff on the candidates? No, I haven't. Great stuff. Really? I'll send it to you. It's great. Yeah, it's great stuff. Really? Hillary, John Kerry, uh, all these guys, all Democrats. How they, how they do? And uh, Frank Luntz did it. Who um, well, I like. Hillary, Hillary did not do well. Really? Kerry did well. You're kidding. I am not kidding. They didn't like Edwards. They thought he was a, lawyer, a rich lawyer pretending to care about Too poor sweet. people. Yeah. Yeah. Hillary was no at all. I don't know. It. Nothing worse than a woman <laughs> Though we must wade into the old mainstream to see if there's any gold worth panning for among today's top stories. The first story on today's Rachel Maddow show front page is an update on the increasingly surreal fallout from the Tom DeLay resignation, the Jack Abramoff scandal, the corruption investigations still swirling a stink in the nation's capital. I have to say, I think it's a little bit weird that it's not bigger news everywhere today that we now know when Jack Abramoff is going to prison. Uh, it's June 29th, if you want to mark it in your calendar. A federal judge in Florida ordered Jack Abramoff, the Republican uber lobbyist from hell, the center of this big corruption investigation, uh, to report to prison by June 29th to start serving his sentence, uh, his nearly six-year sentence in that Florida case. He's still looking at another possible 11 years in the D.C. case, but jail is supposed to start for Jack Abramoff on June 29th. Now, Jack Abramoff's closest and dearest friend, according to Tom DeLay, is Tom DeLay. Uh, Tom DeLay, since he's resigned, has uh, getting standing ovations from Republicans all over Washington, getting praised by Republican leadership for his brave decision to resign his seat after three people close to him turned state's evidence and he realized he needed to turn his campaign fund into lawyer's fees. How brave, how inspiring. But Tom DeLay went on hardball with Chris Matthews this week, the Tuesday night. 
And somehow Harry Shearer apparently uh, got a hold of the tape of what Matthews and DeLay were saying to each other before the segment started, before the cameras officially came on. Check this out. Have you seen this uh, new uh, focus group stuff on the candidates? No, I haven't. Great stuff. Really? I'll send it to you. It's great. Yeah, it's great stuff. Really? Hillary, John Kerry, uh, all these guys, all Democrats. Yeah. Hillary was know-it-all. Nothing worse than a woman knows. Nothing worse than a woman know it all. And you can hear the guy telling them they're going on in eight seconds. It's Chris Matthews offering to send Tom DeLay focus group information on Democratic candidates. Don't all journalists do that? Isn't that kind of weird in itself? But then Tom DeLay says in relation to Hillary Clinton that, quote, there's nothing worse than a woman know it all. You know, amen, Tom. I like them dumb myself. What I like, I like man know it alls. But I like women dummies. That's what I like. You know how it is, Tom. <laughs> anyway, so then the segment actually started with with Chris Matthews and Delay after they warm up and everything gets going, uh, and it was still a very weird segment. Okay, worrying about my own. Do you sense. think the Republicans you met in your career are more moral than Democrats? I, no, I don't. Uh, there are uh, there are some strong moral Democrats. Name one. Uh, Barney Frank. Frank. Barney Frank. Uh, I, I respect him greatly. He's a true liberal, and he's unashamedly a liberal. Um, and I respect that. It's the people that try to hide who they are that I don't respect. Uh, people that that uh, are are drunk with power. Yeah. So you can accept a guy with a lifestyle like Barney Frank and still accept <laughs> him as a good person. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't agree with homosexuality, but but I still I, I'm, I am commanded to love Barney Frank. I'm not going to judge him. I love how Chris Matthews is incredulous that Tom DeLay could tolerate somebody with that lifestyle, that homosexual lifestyle like Barney Frank. And then Tom DeLay says, I am commanded to love Barney Frank. I am commanded to love Barney Frank. The D.C. newspaper Roll Call called Barney Frank for his response to that comment from Tom DeLay. And Barney Frank said, quote, I am prepared to release Tom DeLay from the commandment to love me. God bless Barney Frank. To tie yellow ribbon around something. Something good has begun. Tie yellow ribbon. But now we want to go back to Jill's question about why is Wolf Blister on the air for 48 hours straight every day? I understand that there are only 24 hours in a day, and I understand that he's actually on for just a little under 17 hours. Uh, and why is Jack Cafferty only on for two minutes? I think what gives us an insight into that is this little interaction that Chris Matthews had with Tom DeLay. We ran it for you a little bit earlier in the show, but we didn't do it justice. I want to come back to the relevant portion now. But before we do, the part we ran for you earlier, you see this is what Chris Matthews is talking with Tom DeLay before they go on air. Somebody somehow got a clip of this. It's on the Internet, and we have a link to it on our website so you could watch it comfortably because it's a little small when we show it to you here. This is Matthews and DeLay before they go on air? Before they go on air. That's right. And the first thing Chris Matthews says is, hey, listen, I want to thank you for calling me. I really appreciated it. And it took me a couple of times to watch it for me to understand what he was talking about. And then I got it. Tom DeLay's people called uh, Hardball and told him that Tom DeLay was stepping down at some point, obviously before there was a public announcement. So that's the way that they do favors for each other. So that uh, 
you know, Chris Matthews can come out there with his connections and be like, I've got news, breaking news that nobody else has got. It looks like Tom DeLay might be resigning, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And he looks like he's a cool insider, etc. And, of course, then Chris Matthews has to do a favor back to Tom DeLay. And the way that they do the favor back is doing these softball-ass interviews. Mm-hmm. And so you got a little sense of that. And now, again, when you listen to this, it's a little hard to hear what they're saying. But, I, but you know, I'll, I'll, after you listen to it, I'll explain exactly what they're talking about. And you'll be able to see it on theyoungturks.com. They have more of that kind of talk at the very end of this. And, of course, listen to what uh, t- uh, both Chris Matthews and Tom DeLay have to say about Hillary Clinton as well. Here it is. Go ahead, Aces. And uh, there's Frank Luntz did it. And, um, so focus right, group they're talking about. Hillary did not do well. Really? Harry did well. You're kidding. I am not kidding. They didn't like Edwards. They thought he was a, lawyer, a rich lawyer pretending to care about Too poor sweet. people. Yeah. And Hillary was know-it-all. I don't know. What Nothing worse than a woman know it. No, there's more to it, isn't there? There can't be. They're about to go on the air. Oh, that's where it cuts off? Damn it. There is more to it. I saw it. Let me explain what happens next, okay? What wait, happens? wait, was this yesterday? Uh, well, they put it up uh, uh, today on the Internet, so my guess is it happened last night. Is That's my understanding of it. And what happened next was uh, t- uh, Chris Matthews again says, Hey, listen, thank you so much, man, for coming on. I really owe you a favor. No, I owe you two favors. And Tom DeLay's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. He's like, no, 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 really, man, in the usual sycophant way that Matthews does, he's slobbering all over Tom DeLay, and he's like, I really owe you, man. And that's the way things get done on cable news. In order to get these guys to come on your program so your program looks like it gets good guests and all that stuff, you have to kiss their ass. Mm-hmm. And so when he, Tom DeLay comes on, you think Chris Matthews is going to go hard after him? After he, right before they go on air, he's like, thank you so much for going on. Thank you, man. I owe you not one favor, but I owe you two favors. Of course he's not going to go after him hard. And that's why people like Wolf Blitzer, they, there's an unwritten code that when people come on, He's not going to go, when, especially the Republicans in charge, he's not going to go after them hard. That's why I don't G- understand what they're doing for these people. I've been sleeping with Dick Cheney for the last three and a half years. He has never called in, ever. <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> well, if that was true, man, are you getting rooked. <laughs> That's, uh, and I, I, I would have asked you not to go down that path. It's actually been quite pleasant. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have imagined. He's a tender lover. I, well, that I could see. I could see. As long as he's not shooting you in the face. Mm. Uh, I'm sure he's pretty good. Anyway. Uh, really good aim. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll leave it at that. Jack Cafferty, on the other hand, when he does an hour-long show, if he does an hour-long show, Jill, he's when he, if he has Tom DeLay on, he's not going right. to fillet Tom DeLay. He's not going to be like, oh, Mr. DeLay, thank you for doing me such a great favor by coming on here. We really, really appreciate it. Let me ask you some really easy questions. No, no he's going to come after him hard. And then is Tom DeLay going to go on Jack Cafferty's show? Hell no. He's no, not going to go I mean, on. Chris Matthews' show has gotten better since he started behaving like that. I mean, when I watched it a year and a half ago, he was not landing the guest that he's getting now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, his guest bank has upped since he obviously took the fall. I, I hear you on that, but I don't see the point. I mean, I don't know. I don't follow Matthews closely enough to know how the ebbs and flows of his guest list. But I'll tell you this. What's the point, man? You suck up to all those guys. You do these terrible, uninteresting interviews where you just make a fool out of yourself. 
why bother having a show? Because most people aren't really listening to the show as intently as we are. They see an important person like Tom DeLay on the show. They're like, wow, this must be a really good television program. But they're not really listening to the, the content, no, the they're... dialogue that's happening. And nobody hears in-depth dialogue and, and, and questions that Tom DeLay should no. be answered. So they're not even used to, to, to hearing that. So this nope. vanilla, softcore nope. interview crap that they have is normal. Nope. All it does is impress TV executives who are like, oh, great. Oh, Tom DeLay was on this show. No, Let's go do a circle jerk. No, and Look, I think it brushes by a lot, of, a lot of the viewers out there. No, the viewers don't care. Why do they want to listen to an annoying interview with Tom DeLay who isn't saying anything interesting, who isn't getting asked any interesting questions? And I have empirical proof. They don't know he's not being asked any interesting questions because nobody asks interesting questions. They don't know what they're missing. All they see is a very flashy television show with Tom DeLay or Dick Cheney on there. They're like, wow, this is great TV. Woo, flashy with Tom DeLay. No, no, they don't. I have empirical proof. Their ratings suck. If they were doing good television, people would be watching. And whose ratings improving? Oberman. And he doesn't have that many guests he does, because he doesn't bother asking him to do favors. Instead, he does things that are interesting and funny and hard-hitting. And all of a sudden, his ratings are going up. Why? Because people like that. They don't want to see you blow Tom DeLay on air. They have no interest in that. The TV executives have an interest in that because they think that it makes you, gives you more credibility. But the bottom line is, does anybody watch your program? And for Chris Matthews... Almost no one does. Your theory will play out then when television executives see that the ratings are going up on Oberman and Stephen Colbert and Jon Stewart. And Absolutely. if the tide changes, your theory is totally correct. And the tide is already changing. By the way, let's not uh, gloss over the fact that Tom DeLay just said there, nothing worse than a woman know-it-all. What a pleasant guy. Oh, I'm so sorry to see him go. Nothing worse than a woman know-it-all. And Matthews, does he challenge him on it? Of course not. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, if you have not been to the best of the left podcast.com in a while, I've got to say, you are missing out. The website is slightly redesigned. I've been doing a little bit of work on it recently. I think it's looking better and even more functional than it has been in the past. Um, first of all, the most uh, important thing is the content, of course. That's what you all come to listen to anyways. If you uh, hear someone you like and you want to find out more about them, go right to my website and I have a complete listing of all of the shows that have uh, ever contributed to the best of the left, and, and complete with links to their, uh, their own websites, and you can find out all about them and, uh, and of course, information on podcasting their show individually if you would like to do that. Also, of course, there's a complete listing of all of my previous shows, complete with show notes, um, most of which, I believe, uh, include labelings of what contributor contributed which segment of each episode, if that makes sense. Also, there's the issue of 
the format in which you get the show. If you uh, use iTunes and own an iPod and all that good stuff, and you're getting the MP3 feed, well, you can switch over and get the iTunes feed. There's a little bit more content, extra pictures, chapter labels, uh, links embedded in, in the feed itself. Lots of fun for those who um, have a little bit too much time on their hands. And if you are for any reason using the iTunes feed, but you have trouble listening to it because you don't have the right software, you can switch over to the MP3 feed, which is totally universal and works on anybody's computer and any MP3 player of any kind. There are a number of ways that you can contact me through the website. Of course, there are links all over the site for uh, just to email me, or you can just type direct hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Uh, but you can also go down the list of links, also right on the home page, all these different ways to contact me, or um, the community, as it were, with the first case, the best of the left community, where you can go and leave messages on the show's message board. Introduce yourself, uh, let everyone know who you are and why you listen, or just respond to the show. You can also leave reviews in iTunes, vote and leave comments at Podcast Alley, take my listener survey, or if you prefer to communicate in a method that is maybe more appropriate for a political talk show, as this one is, you can donate to my now euphemistically relabeled PayPal tip jar. And finally, the answer to the question you have all been wondering, what is the personalized phrase laser engraved on the back of my iPod? Well, I'll tell you, it is the quote that I've chosen to live my life by, and it is right at the top of the homepage, right under the title of the show, in the top right-hand corner of the page. So if you would like a brief glimpse at the inner workings of my psyche, the thought process that was going on that led me to the creation of this very show, then go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and you will find the singular most important guiding principle that I live by and have lived by for the past couple of years or so, ever since I learned of the quote and and fell in love with it, basically, and the the principle that I plan on carrying with me to the end of my days. So enjoy all of that excitement, and I will talk to you soon. Have a good one, everybody.